At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 5, Early Cold War Leaders, Stalin. In this episode, we will be briefly examining the life of Joseph Stalin. No single figure in the early Cold War was as influential as Stalin. A member of the original Bolshevik regime in 1917 and leader of the Soviet Union from 1924 to 1953, Stalin arguably had the greatest impact on the structure of the Soviet Union politically, economically, militarily, and ideologically. Moreover, few men in the modern period were able to exert such absolute control over so vast a territory, over so many people, for such a long time. To this day, Stalin is a complicated and controversial figure in Russian history, having been voted one of Russia's greatest leaders in public opinion polls despite his acts of genocide. Stalin was originally born Beresanis de Shakavili, nicknamed Soso, an ethnic Georgian, on the edge of the vast Russian Empire. Soso was born on the 18th of December, 1878, in the town of Gori, in what is now Georgia. He was the youngest of three boys, although his older brothers had died in infancy. Soso's father was a cobbler, while his mother was a housemaid. As a child, Soso was plagued with numerous health issues. He was born with two adjoined toes on his left foot, and his face was permanently scarred by smallpox at the age of seven. Soso's youth was very violent in comparison to contemporary childhood. Soso was involved in individual fights and neighborhood brawls on a regular basis. Soso's father, from what we understand, slipped into alcoholism for reasons that are not clear. Some suspect that his small business was failing, which could have been a possibility. We know as well that Soso's father started fighting with his mother, eventually leaving the family and moving to Tiflis for work. Some say he was exiled after a fight with the police in Gori, but this point is disputed. Many people point to these traumatic events of Stalin's early life as the forces that shaped him into a paranoid, genocidal monster, but we shouldn't be so quick to judge. Alcoholism was a common problem at the time, as was domestic violence and failed marriages. So Stalin's childhood wasn't that far out of the norm for the period. Even today, unfortunately, issues around domestic violence and alcoholism still exist. But having a violent, uh, drunken, abusive father and growing up in a broken household doesn't make everyone a future genocidal dictator. Millions experienced similar struggles in life and did not become murderers. There was a bright spot in Soso's childhood, though, his mother. She cared greatly about Soso and his future. She wanted young Shakovili to become a priest and convinced her parish priest to tutor her son along with his own. This is where young Soso first learned Russian. At the age of 10, Soso received a scholarship to the Gori Theological School. His peers were mostly the sons of affluent priests, officials, and merchants. He and most of his classmates at Gori 
were Georgians and spoke mostly Georgian. However, at school, they were forced to speak Russian. Stalin was one of the best students in class, earning top marks. He became a very good choir singer and was often hired to sing at weddings. He was also began to write poetry, something he would become famous for years later. And from what we understand, Soso became very religious. At the age of 12, Soso was struck by a horse-drawn carriage and injured severely. This accident damaged his left arm, rendering it shorter and stiffer than his right arm. If you look at footage of Stalin, you can even make it out if you watch closely. Soso was taken to a hospital in Tiflis, where he spent months in care. After he recovered, his father seized the boy and enrolled him as an apprentice cobbler at the shoe factory where he worked. His mother, through the aid of contacts in the clergy and school staff, recovered the boy. Soso's father was furious and cut off all financial support to his wife and son leaving them to fend for themselves. Soso returned to school, where he continued to excel and graduated first in his class. When Soso was 16, he received a scholarship to attend the, the Tiflis Spiritual Seminary, the leading Russian Orthodox seminary in the region. At first, Soso was excited to be accepted and to begin his studies to become a priest. He soon, however, hated the place. The school is extremely strict. Virtually all non-religious books were banned, as was leaving the school grounds. The teachers at the seminary were also determined to impose Russian language and culture on the Georgian students. They caught, those caught speaking Georgian were severely punished. Like many of his colleagues, Sosa rebelled by being drawn to Georgian patriotism and for a time wrote Georgian poetry for which he gained some fame. During this time at the seminary, Soso and other students read forbidden literature that included Victor Hugo novels and revolutionary works, including Marxist material. He was caught and punished numerous times for this infraction. Within his first year, Soso became an atheist, giving up his faith and insisting his peers call him Koba, after the Robin Hood-like protagonist of the novel Patricide by Alexander Kurtzby. He continued to use this pseudonym as a revolutionary. In August 1898, he joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, a Marxist organization from which the Bolsheviks would later form. Shortly before the final exams, the seminary abruptly raised school fees. Unable to pay, Koba quit the seminary in 1899 and missed the exams for which he was officially expelled. Shortly after leaving school, Koba discovered the writings of Vladimir Lenin and decided to become a revolutionary. After abandoning his priestly education, Koba took a job as a clerk at the Tiflis Meteorological Observatory. Although the pay was relatively low, 20 rubles a month, his workload was light, giving him plenty of time for revolutionary activities. He would organize strikes, lead demonstrations, and give speeches. He soon caught the attention of the Tsar's secret police, the Orkana. In April 1901, the Orkana arrested a number of SD party leaders in Tiflis. Koba avoided arrest and went underground, becoming a full-time revolutionary, living off donations from friends, sympathizers, and his party. He also began writing revolutionary articles for the Baku-based radical newspaper Barzola, or Struggle. In October, he fled to Betom and got work at an oil refinery. In 1902, a fire broke out at the refinery, and it is strongly suspected Koba was involved. The workers were entitled to a bonus for putting out the fire, but the manager suspected arson and refused to pay. In response, Koba organized a series of strikes, which in turn led to arrests and street clashes with the Cossacks. Cossacks were tough-hired police mercenaries of the Russian Tsarist regime. On the 18th of April, 
1902, the authorities finally arrested Koba at a secret meeting. At his trial, he was acquitted of leading the, the riots due to lack of evidence, but was kept in custody whilst the authorities investigated his activities in Tiflis. Koba ended up in the Siberian village of Novia Uda on the 9th of December, 1903. During this time, he heard that two rival factions within the Social Democrats had formed, the Bolsheviks under Lenin and the Mensheviks. Koba, already an admirer of Lenin, decided to join the Bolsheviks. He managed to obtain false papers and on the 17th of January, 1904, escaped Siberia by train, arriving back in Tiflis 10 days later. With no income, Koba lived off of his circle of friends. During this period, Koba favored a Georgian Socialist Democratic Party, which caused a rift with the majority who favored international Marxism, and they threatened him with expulsion. He was eventually forced to write a paper renouncing his views and embracing international Marxism. Through the Russian Revolution of 1905, chaos reigned, which we examined in Episode 2. Koba, during this period, competed with the Mensheviks for popular support amongst the workers in the Caucasus. Eventually, Koba organized and armed Bolshevik militias across Georgia. With them, he ran protection rackets among the wealthy and waged guerrilla warfare on the Cossacks, policemen, and the Orkana. Later that year, in the townhouse in which he had moved in Tiflis, he met Eterkrena Savida, who he would become his first wife. In 1906, Stalin traveled to Finland to meet Lenin for the first time and represent the Caucasus at the Bolshevik Conference. Over the following years, he would become a lot more active in the Bolshevik Party leadership, networking, and building a name for himself. Meanwhile, in Georgia, the Russian army was attempting to crush the Marxist rebellion in the area. Koba and his friends attempted to assassinate Russian officials and continued to raise money for the Bolsheviks through extortion, bank robberies, and holdups. During this period, Stalin had his first son, Yakov, but his wife soon came down with typhus in 1907 and passed away. Koba was overcome with grief and retreated into mourning for several months. The loss had hardened him. He told a friend, quote, With her death, my last warm feelings for humanity are gone. Close quote. He abandoned his son Yakov, who was raised by his deceased wife's family. He soon threw himself back into revolutionary activities. But in 1908, the Arcana tracked him down and arrested him again. After seven months in prison, he was sentenced to two years' exile. He arrived in the village of Surogetsk, northeast of Moscow, in early March 1909. After seven months in exile, he disguised himself as a woman and escaped on train and returned to Baku in late July. In 1910, Koba started using his assumed name of Stalin, roughly translating as Man of Steel. In addition to fostering his hardline image, the moniker was supposedly adopted to an, in an effort to shield his real identity from police whilst involved in revolutionary activities. By 1910, the Bolsheviks were on the verge of collapse due to arcana arrests and infighting amongst the party leadership. Over the next three years, Stalin was arrested and exiled multiple times but managed to escape and return to St. Petersburg to carry on revolutionary activity. Eventually, in 1913, Stalin was again arrested and this time exiled to the edge of the Arctic Circle, making it extremely difficult to escape. There he lived the life of a hunter-gatherer, having learned fishing and hunting from local Siberian tribesmen. While there, he began a two-year affair with Lydia Peregrina, then age 13, with whom he fathered two children. Stalin, 35 at the time, was 22 years her senior. 
In late 1916, Stalin was conscripted into the army, but the medical examiner found him unfit for service due to his damaged left arm. Stalin's apparent ease in escaping from Tsarist persecution and very light sentences led to rumors that he was an Arcano agent. However, there is no hard evidence of Stalin's collaboration with the Arcana, and few alleged reports from Stalin to the Arcana published by the media appear to be forgeries. Historian Simon Munford found that in all surviving Arcana records, Stalin is described as a revolutionary and never as a spy. Munford argued that Stalin escaped from his exile so frequently because the exile system was not secure. An exile only needed money and false papers to escape the village where he was settled, and thousands did. Stalin also had spies of his own in the Arcana warning him of their actions in advance. In the wake of the February Revolution of 1917, Stalin was released from exile. On the March the 25th, he returned to St. Petersburg with just a typewriter and a suitcase, wearing a suit he had on in 1913 when he was arrested. Stalin went on to become the head editor of Pravda, the official newspaper of the Bolsheviks, and went on to support Lenin in the revolutionary period. Upon seizing St. Petersburg in 1917, the Bolsheviks formed the new revolutionary authority, the Council of People's Commissars. Stalin was appointed People's Commissar for Nationalities Affairs. His job was to win over non-Russian citizens of the former Russian Empire. He was relieved of his post as editor of Pravda so that he could devote himself fully to his new role. As we saw in episode 2, however, civil war was soon, soon broke out between the Bolsheviks and those who opposed their control of the country. In May 1918, Lenin dispatched Stalin to the city of Zaratsitsyn, later known as Stalingrad, now Volgrad. Situated in the lower Volga, it is a key supply route to the oil and grain of the northern Caucasus. There was a critical shortage of food in Russia, and Stalin was assigned to procure any food he could find. The city was also in danger of falling to the White Army and was vital to the communist movement. During this time, Stalin also married again to Elvira Nadazia. She first met Stalin as a child when her father, Sergei, had sheltered him after one of his escapes from Siberia in exile during 1911. Adazia and Stalin had two children together, Vasily, born in 1921, who became a fighter pilot, and a daughter in 1926. The marriage was strained, and the two argued frequently. She also suffered from a mental illness, possibly bipolar disorder. After a public spat with Stalin at a party in 1932, Natasia shot herself in a bedroom. Accounts of contemporaries in Stalin's letters indicate that he was very much disturbed by the event. Meanwhile, as the Civil War raged, Stalin challenged many of the decisions made by Trotsky, who at the time was chairman of the Revolutionary Military Council and thus his military superior. Stalin ordered the killings of many former Tsarist army officers in the Red Army that Trotsky had hired for their experience, but Stalin distrusted them. This created friction between Stalin and Trotsky. Stalin even wrote to Lenin asking that Trotsky be relieved of his post. Lenin, nonetheless, considered Stalin a loyal ally, and when he got mired in squabbles with Trotsky and other politicians, decided to support Stalin. With the help of Lev Kemenov, Lenin appointed Stalin general secretary in 1922, one of the most powerful positions in the new Soviet state. This post enabled Stalin to appoint many of his allies to government positions. Lenin suffered strokes in May and December 1922, forcing him into semi-retirement. Stalin visited him often, acting as his intermediary, 
with the outside world. During Lenin's semi-retirement, Stalin forged an alliance with Kamenov and Gorky Zeninov against Trotsky. Some have argued that Lenin wrote a letter towards the end of his life warning of the dangers of Stalin. However, the validity of the letter has been held in question, as well as Lenin's mental health in his last years of life. However, real or not, Stalin and his allies prevented Lenin's testament from being revealed. Lenin died of his stroke on the 21st of January, 1924. Following Lenin's death, a power struggle began, which involved seven Politburo members. Stalin's disputes with Kamenov and Zeninov intensified. Trotsky, Kamenov, and Zeninov grew increasingly isolated and were eventually ejected from the Central Committee and then from the party itself. Kamenov and Zeninov were later readmitted, but Trotsky was exiled from the Soviet Union. By December 1934, the popular Communist Party boss in Leningrad, Sergei Kirchhoff, was murdered. Stalin blamed Kirchhoff's murder on a vast conspiracy of saboteurs and Trotskyites. He launched a massive purge against these internal enemies, putting them on rigged show trials and then having them executed or imprisoned in Siberian gulags. Among these victims were his old enemies, including Kamenov and Zeminov. Stalin made the loyal Nikolia Zinov head of the secret police, the NKVD, and had him purge the NKVD of veteran Bolsheviks. With no serious opponents left in power, Stalin ended the purge in 1938. Zivov was eventually blamed for the excesses of the Great Terror. He was dismissed from office and later executed. Stalin exercised extensive personal control over the Communist Party and unleashed an unprecedented levels of violence to eliminate any potential threat to his regime. While Stalin exercised major control over political initiatives, their implementation was in the control of localities, often with local leaders interpreting the policies in a way that served themselves best. This abuse of power by local leaders exacerbated the violent purges and terror campaigns that were carried out by Stalin against party members of the deemed deemed to be traitors. Some 1.5 million people were arrested and 681,692 of these were executed during the Great Purge. The Stalinist era also saw the introduction of a system of forced labor camps, of convicts and political dissidents in what became the Gulag system. About 14 million people were in the Gulag labor camps from 1929 to 1953. According to a 1993 study of archival Soviet data, a total of 1,053,829 people died in the Gulag from 1934 to 1953. However, taking into account the likelihood of unreliable record-keeping and the fact that it was common practice to release prisoners who were either suffering from incurable diseases or near death, non-state estimates of the actual Gulag death toll are usually higher. Some independent estimates are as low as 1.6 million deaths, during the whole period from 1929 to 1953, while others' estimates go beyond 10 million. Most gulag inmates were not political prisoners, although significant numbers of political prisoners could be found in the camps at any one time. Petty crimes and jokes about the Soviet government and officials were punishable by imprisonment. About half of political prisoners in the gulag camps were imprisoned without trial. Official data suggests that there were over 2.6 million sentences to imprisonment on cases investigated by the secret police throughout 1921 to 1953. During this period, Stalin also vastly increased the scope and power of the state's intelligence agencies. 
Under his guiding hand, Soviet intelligence forces began to set up intelligence networks in most of the major nations of the world, including Germany, Great Britain, France, Japan, and the United States. Stalin made a considerable use of the communist international movement and local communist and socialist parties in order to infiltrate his agents to ensure that foreign communist parties remain pro-Soviet and plant local pro-Soviet spies in government posts. These spies would deliver thousands of diplomatic and technological secrets to the Soviets, stealing secrets such as the atomic bomb and warning Stalin of Hitler's pending invasion, though he chose not to believe them. Soviet intelligence gave Stalin a clear advantage over the West in the opening stages of the Cold War. One of the best examples of Stalin's foreign espionage came in 1940, when he had Leon Trotsky assassinated in Mexico City, despite the fact Trotsky was in a walled compound with security around him. To this day, the FSB, the successor to the NKVD and KGB, is one of the most feared and sophisticated intelligence agencies in the world. Stalin also controlled the media. He moved beyond just censoring the press. All media and propaganda was tightly controlled. The press was told what to write and how to write about it. A cult of personality also built up around Stalin. Numerous towns, villages, and cities were renamed after him. The Soviet press presented Stalin as an all-powerful, all-knowing leader, and Stalin's name and image became omnipresent, meaning there were pictures and images of Stalin almost everywhere looking down on you. The press portrayed him as a caring yet strong father figure with the Soviet populace as his children. The image of Stalin as a father was only one way in which Soviet propagandists aimed to incorporate traditional religious symbols and language into the cult of personality. The title of father now first and foremost belonged to Stalin as opposed to Russian Orthodox priests. The cult of personality also adopted the Christian tradition of procession and devotion to icons through the use of Stalinist parades and effigies. By reapplying various aspects of religion to the cult of personality, the press hoped to shift devotion away from the church and towards Stalin. Stalin also accepted many grand titles such as Father of the Nations, Brilliant Genius of Humanity, Great Architect of Communism, Gardener of Human Happiness, and others. He rewrote the Soviet history to provide himself a more significant role in the revolution of 1917. Statues of Stalin depict him at a height of roughly 6'3". However, sources suggest he was approximately 5'4". During World War II, Stalin had his name included into the national anthem. Stalin became the focus of literature, poetry, music, paintings, and film that exhibited fawning devotion. He was sometimes credited with almost godlike qualities, including the suggestion that he single-handedly won the Second World War. What Stalin thought of the cult of personality surrounding him is unclear. Stalin acted modestly and unassumingly in public and even gave speeches that diminished the importance of the individual leaders and disparaged the cult forming around him, painting such a cult as unbolshevik. Stalin could have, but did not, stop the pervasive level of frenzied devotion. Privately, he claimed that he had tried to do so, but that everyone assumed he was acting out of false modesty. Stalin admitted that he understood the cult of personality was a necessary evil among the simpler sections of the Soviet population, who were used to worshipping a czar, but feared that for the intelligentsia, this attention on the individual would take away focus from the party ideas. Etrum Sergeyev, Stalin's adopted son, recalled a fight between Stalin and his biological son, Vasily. 
After Stalin found out Vasily had used his famous last name to escape punishment for one of his drunken nights, Stalin screamed at him. Vasily yelled back, But I'm Stalin too. No, you're not, said Stalin. You're not Stalin. I am not Stalin. Stalin is Soviet power. Stalin is what he is in the newspapers and the portraits. Not you, not even me. To some degree, Stalin accepted the Soviet people's dedication to him as an embodiment of the party, but he discouraged all interest in his private and family life and divulged only limited personal information. He rarely appeared in public by the mid-1930s. Meanwhile, Stalin ruthlessly persecuted religion. By the 1930s, it was nearly extinct. By 1939, active parishes had numbered in the low hundreds, down from 54,000 in 1917. Many churches had been leveled, and tens of thousands of priests, monks, and nuns were persecuted and killed. Over 100,000 were shot during the purges of 1937 and 1938. However, during World War II, the church was allowed a revival as a patriotic organization, and thousands of parishes were reactivated. Economically, under Stalinism, the Soviet Union pursued a policy of mass, heavy industrialization, building steel mills, factories, dams, canals, and power plants. Stalin believed he had to build up and modernize the Soviet economy in order to build a modern military, defend the nation against foreign capitalist powers like the Great Britain and the United States. In the countryside, the Soviet Union pursued a policy of forced collectivization. This was intended to increase agricultural output from large-scale mechanized farms to bring the peasantry under more direct political control and to make tax collection more efficient. Kulaks, or those peasants who were marginally better off than their neighbors, were systematically wiped out as a class. The remaining peasants were required to give up their property and the few personal belongings they had and forced to work on collective farms under harsh conditions. It's important to remember on these collective farms, people didn't work for each other or for the community. They labored for the state and the glory of the Soviet Union. These economic policies resulted in economic disaster as hundreds of thousands starved to death. Stalin more or less pushed the, so the Russian peasants into a technocratic form of serfdom, suspending what little rights they had enjoyed since 1861. Census data during this time from 1932 to 1939 tell us the Soviet Union lost between 9 to 10 million people. Diplomatically, after solidifying his grip on the Soviet Union in the late 1920s, Stalin kept the Soviet Union isolated. He did start the Third Communist International, or Comintern, an international organization that advocated world communism and revolution with representatives from communist parties from around the world. On paper, this was an international organization with equal representation, but in practice, the organization was dominated by the Soviet Union. By the mid-1930s, though, Stalin had grown weary of fomenting revolutions abroad, especially after setbacks in China, and sought to build socialism in one country, the Soviet Union. Stalin also sensed the growing danger of fascism and Nazism and sought to establish coalitions to contain Germany and Italy. Stalin also faced a growing danger from Japan, who had invaded Manchuria in 1931 and now boarded the Soviet Union. Stalin's fears grew when Japan signed the Anti-Comintern Pact with Germany in 1936 to stop the spread of communism. To push back, the Comintern adopted a policy of cooperation with socialists and liberals against fascism, thus changing its position from the early 1930s. The Soviet Union joined the League of Nations and advocated for collective security against fascist aggression, 
Additionally, in 1935, the Soviet Union concluded defensive military alliances with France and Czechoslovakia aimed against Germany. The first major Marxist-Fascist clash, however, came in Spain with the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. The Soviet Union sent material aid and advisors to the Republican forces in Spain, while Hitler and the Italians backed Spanish nationalists under Franco. The Western democracies, on the other hand, remained neutral, fearing another world war, making Stalin and the Soviets question the democracy's willingness to stand up against fascism. These suspicions were reinforced in 1938 at Munich when the Allies backed down to German demands, surrendering the Sudetenland to Germany despite the Soviet Union's willingness to aid both Britain and France in defense of Czechoslovakia. At this point, Stalin was convinced the Allies were weak and wouldn't stand up to Hitler, so he decided to make a separate peace with Germany and hope for the best. So in 1939, Stalin and Hitler signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after their respective foreign ministers. Not only did this pact secure peace between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany for 10 years, it allowed for a division of Eastern Europe between the two powers. Despite having this pact, everyone was shocked, especially Stalin, when Hitler broke the non-aggression pact on June 22, 1941, and invaded the Soviet Union. Eventually, the Soviet Union prevailed through a combination of Russia's vast size, harsh weather conditions, Soviet determination, and Lend-Lease supplies from the Allies. However, this victory was achieved at a high cost. The Soviet Union had suffered 26.6 million deaths, both civilian and military, with an estimated 2 trillion rubles worth of damage in Western Russia. At the end of the war, Stalin would build up a buffer zone in Eastern Europe, establishing satellite regimes and helping to set up the stage for the Cold War, which we saw in our last episode. Stalin's health deteriorated towards the end of the Second World War. He had difficulty breathing as a result of his heavy smoking over the years, and had also suffered mild stroke in the spring of 1945 and a severe heart attack in October 1945. In the early morning hours of March 1, 1953, after an all-night dinner and a movie, Stalin arrived at his residence 15 kilometers west of Moscow with a few of his ministers, where he retired to his bedroom to sleep. At dawn, Stalin did not emerge from his room. Although his guards thought it was strange not to see him awake at his usual time, they were strictly instructed not to bother him and left him alone the entire day. At around 10 p.m., the deputy commandant entered his bedroom to check on him and recalled the scene of Stalin laying on his back on the floor of his room besides his bed, wearing pajama bottoms and an undershirt with his clothes soaked in stale urine. The doctors arrived in the early morning of the 2nd of March, where they changed Stalin's bedclothes and tended to him. They diagnosed him with a stroke caused by high blood pressure. He was treated with leeches, as was the custom at the time. However, the bedridden Stalin died on March the 5th, 1953, at the age of 74. In a final estimation, Stalin was a cunning politician, bureaucrat, and fervent Marxist-Leninist. He was a highly intelligent and well-read leader and a perfect Machiavellian prince. Legend has it that he always kept a copy of Machiavelli's The Prince on his person. Much more could be said about Stalin, but his life and times could be a podcast series in itself. When Stalin had taken control of the Soviet Union, it was a struggling nation with little industry. By the time of his death, the Soviet Union was the second greatest power in the world. But this had come at a tremendous cost in blood and treasure. If you'd like to learn more about Stalin, I would recommend reading Stephen Kotkin's new book, Stalin, which is a great biography about his life and times. 
I want to thank you for listening to Episode 5, Early Cold War Leaders Stalin. Join us for Episode 6, Early Cold War Leaders Part 2, where we'll be taking a biographical portrait looking at more leaders of the early Cold War. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast, all one word. To find out our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to Cold War Podcast at Gmail. Cold War Podcast, all one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.